You are listening to National Security Law Today. Well, every cloud has a silver lining, and that's never been truer on this podcast than today. We're here on National Security Law Today with Alyssa Starzak, Head of Public Policy for Cloudfare, Inc. I see what you did there. I'm Nicole. I'm Alisa. And I'm Yvette. We're continuing our series celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment by highlighting women's important contributions to national security. <laughs> it is a real treat to have Alyssa in today. She has a, She's had a really fascinating career. After clerking in the Fifth Circuit, she went to O'Melveny and Myers to specialize in internal investigations and litigation. Then she did basically every interesting government job in D.C. She was a secret squirrel at the litigation division of the CIA, and then over on the Hill as counsel to the Senate Intel Committee. Then she went over to the Pentagon to be the Deputy General Counsel for Legislation for the Department of Defense, handling anything with a legislative or congressional component. Then she was appointed to be Army General Counsel, and after that, she joined Cloudflare. It is terrific to have you here. And I'm so happy to be here today. (laughs) All right, well, where can we begin? Let's start with your work in the intelligence community. Um, I'm sure you have some cool stories that you can tell about litigating for the CIA, and probably so many more that you can't. (laughs) (laughs) That's the fun thing about the CIA. There are always stories you can't tell. (laughs) Uh, No, but I had some really interesting times at the CIA. So the interesting thing about litigation division is that it covers everything at the CIA, anything that touches litigation. So everything from uh, prosecutions that have a foreign intelligence component or anything foreign, frankly, uh, to uh, CIA uh, officers who are undercover and trying to undergo a divorce and not lie to the court. (laughs) So it's a a really full range um, with a very large docket, some of which is public and some of which is not. Um, One of the more interesting stories actually from the time that I was there, I actually worked on a trial of a former CIA contractor. And one of the pieces of the trial, what they wanted to bring people in who were still at the agency, uh, but were undercover. And so one of the things that we did, actually, was to work with the CIA's Office of Technical Services to put those officers in light disguise so that they could testify, but it wouldn't be obvious who they were to anyone else uh, who might come in for for the public trial. Which is, by the way, permitted under law. There is a case, Gregorio, out of the D.C. Circuit and many others. That's right. Really interesting, especially since I imagine that whatever uh, the other side had some issues with uh, the confrontation clause and, like, the right to confront your witnesses. Uh, you know, the, the whole point of light disguise is that you can actually still see the witness. Uh, it just isn't obvious who the – it's not easy, easy to identify them after the fact. Uh, so the goal is to be able to actually get the benefits of the confrontation clause but still protect the witness. They wear nose glasses. <laughs> you know, the party Nothing nose, but nose, nose glasses. glasses. <laughs> wow. So that, that's, a pretty interesting, uh, that's a pretty interesting case. And then after you the, you went to work on the Hill, and we don't always get a lot of Hill staffers here at National Security Law Today, so uh, could you let us know what that was like and what some of the things you worked on there were? So I went to the Hill in 2007, which is a really interesting time to be there. Uh, there was a lot of new oversight going on of congressional programs that had been, or that of executive branch programs that had been very tightly controlled before that. Uh, so it was lots of interesting legal issues. And the interesting thing about being on the Hill is that you have a bird's eye view of what's happening in the intelligence community. So unlike of all jobs in the executive branch except for the very senior ones, you actually are seeing across different agencies and you're thinking about what the policy is and what the strategy is. And the people who come in are very senior. So from a Hill perspective, it, from a just a, 
exposure perspective, um, you get an incredible exposure to what's ha- happening at a policy level. Uh, while I was there, we did uh, a report on in- detention and interrogation. Uh, we did uh, we worked on a reform to FISA, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, we did a million other things related to covert action and, and all sorts of things. It's, it was a um, it was a really interesting time to be there. But again, I think the thing I appreciated about it the most was just the ability to see across, and that is really the benefit of a Hill job. Were you flashing back when you were watching maybe the impeachment uh, proceedings, <laughs> either um, having uh, having flashbacks or not jealous of their late hours, probably? <laughs> You know, I think that the most interesting thing about the impeachment for staff is that all of their members were sitting on the floor. So in the Senate, um, all of the members were sitting on the floor, which meant the staff were not there. (laughs) Um, So the staff were probably back in the office actually getting work done. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, actually on the the Hill, uh, one of the things that you forget about is how bills get passed uh, and what the negotiation process looks like. So when you're operating on a committee that largely operates in secret, um, but then you're trying to pass a bill, it's thinking about what that compromise looks like to brief people enough uh, so that they can actually uh, responsibly vote on a, on a piece of legislation um, while still um, maintaining things that actually should be more limited and for reasons for sources and methods reasons. Did, was, were there any kind of comparable times where um, information that the Senate uh, Intel Committee requested was denied as we're experiencing right now? <laughs> so it's it's always a level. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically, what you see in the in the back and forth between the executive branch and the legislative branch, it's a compromise. There's a there's a sort of a dance. No, we won't give you this, but but hey, we'll give you this. Um, so we won't give you the document that you've asked for, but we'll give you give you a summary of it, or we'll come brief you on it. Uh, I think one of the things that's notable is that there is much less of that dance now. Um, it's much more just an absolutely no. Um, but you know, I'm not there, so it's a it's, it's obviously a different perspective. Totally. Um, So you were then nominated to be the Army General Counsel, but your confirmation was held up initially, ostensibly because of your work on Senate Intel. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened and how that felt? Sure. So uh, I had been uh, I had moved over to the Department of Defense in 2011. So I had been there for a while. At that point, uh, I was working with Congress. I was working on a legislative role uh, in the sense that anything that was legal that was related to Congress was something that I was involved with. So I was very involved in understanding what the confirmation process looked like. Um, I actually shepherded people through confirmation at various times. So something that I was actually very familiar with. Um, when I got nominated to be Army General Counsel, we went through the sort of standard nomination process. I had small holdups on me based on uh, things that uh, various senators wanted on a personal level for their districts. Um, They wanted a cleanup here or something there. Um, Very sort of standard uh, confirmation process uh, holdups. And then at the very end of the year, so typically the way nominations work, our confirmations work, uh, they they will hold them, uh, a bunch of them, until the very end of the year, and then they will all pass through at the end of the Congress um, so that they actually clear out the calendar um, at the end of the Congress because nominations expire. Uh, So at the very end of the Congress, uh, I found out that my nomination had gotten pulled. Um, there was very little uh, information prior to that that it, that was going to happen. Um, so the next thing I sort of knew was that uh, my nomination was not going forward. Um, I learned that later that the objection was based on my work in the Senate um, because, again, I had worked on the detention and interrogation report, uh, and I had apparently um, had some folks who were not so happy with the fact that I had worked on that report. Um, so that, that led actually to a pretty long delay um, in my confirmation hearing. I ended up having to do a second confirmation hearing, uh, which was a much more contentious one than the first, um, and then eventually uh, did get confirmed um, about 18 months after I'd been nominated. Wow. So what 
advice would you have for somebody uh, going through that? Because that happens periodically. Yours was kind of an extraordinary case, but um, people have to undergo a lot of stress during this process. Like, what advice would you give to them? I think the benefit for me was that I was in a government job, uh, so it wasn't as disruptive as it would be if I had left the private sector, for example, and was just waiting, in which 18 months, it's a long time to just sit around waiting if you don't have a job. Yeah. Yes, uh, I would say so. Um, I, I think so. that was a benefit. I also think um, it was easy, a little bit easier for me because at least I understood how Congress worked, um, so I understood what the process might look like and what the negotiations would look like. I think the challenging thing on the personal side um, is that it's very hard to not take it personally. Um, and I think um, you often, it's, it's very easy for someone to become sort of a political foil um, because someone has an issue with a uh, broader policy goal um, that may not be yours, frankly, one way or another. And it, it's, it's, it's almost irrelevant whether it's yours or not. Um, you're not the policymaker when you're in, those, in a staff mm-hmm. role, um, and yet you are then held responsible <laughs> for the policy. So I, I think that's a, that can be a, a bit of a challenge. Um, at the same time, I, I actually think the work that I did in the Senate was really important. So it wasn't something that I ever stepped back and said, this isn't something I should have done. Um, so not for Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that was interesting about your uh, confirmation nomination um, was that nobody was questioning your qualifications, obviously. It was really something that was out of your control and you were, at the end of the day, just doing your job that you were assigned to do um, as counsel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think that's what happens when you sometimes get caught up in controversial issues, right? I mean, I think that that is something that happens. Um, And you have to recognize that when you work on issues that some people have concerns about, um, they are going to express those concerns. Um, I I really don't think it was about what I did necessarily in that context. I think there was some broader policy concerns that uh, were bigger than me, (laughs) (laughs) way to put it. Um, But I, I was very happy to have gotten through at the end. But, yeah, and so were we. (laughs) Um, You were eventually confirmed, and I really enjoyed working with you while you were at Army. Um, Can we talk about what the Army General Counsel does and what memorable issues you've worked on in that job? Sure. So uh, so I I had been coming from DOD, and I think it's actually worth thinking about the difference between what we call Big DOD or OSD uh, and uh, and the Army. So OSD has uh, really the oversight role uh, in a a large way. There's an operational component to um, to the things that are happening at at, at Big DOD. Uh, The Army has a man, train, and equip mission. Uh, So it's really looking at how do you bring people in um, to to, to serve, uh, how do you train them, how do you make sure that they have the equipment so that they are ready to go um, if if there is a requirement that they go. Uh, So it's a a very different mission in many ways. Um, People don't always recognize that that's what I've learned <laughs> on the outside. That's not something that's a, a very familiar to people, um, but it is a, it, it's a very different function. Because um, the Army doesn't send people to war. That's right. You're not making the operational decisions. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the big difference is that that operational piece, um, the operational piece is not handled um, at the Army level, even if uh, you may be aware of what's happening externally. That those, that's not where the decisions are getting made. Yeah, so they're going, the combatant commands are the ones that are running the operational. And the Secretary of Defense, right? right. I mean, from a civilian c- civilian control over the military standpoint, um, it's certainly coming at that level down from the President to the Secretary of Defense um, and then out. It, where it is not going are the military services. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I think uh, on the interesting issue side, um, there are a remarkable number of really interesting issues that come up even in that context, though. So um, we had... Uh, really interesting uh, religious accommodation questions that came up. So, for example, um, 
when can someone serve? You know, what if we had we had a, a sick who wanted to serve um, but didn't want to cut his hair, even though there are certain guidelines in the army, for example, that um, would require you to cut your hair. So when is that something that you can accommodate um, as a religious accommodation? How do you think about that? Um, what does that look like? What is the process for it? Uh, we, really interesting questions, both on the litigation side, but then thinking through how do you develop policy that works for the Army in that context um, and and makes sense to people, um, makes it feel like it's a fair accommodation. Yeah, did you spend a lot of time um, uh, helping people massage the policy? Because there are a number of ways you can be a lawyer, especially for an institutional client like DOD. Um, you can just say, here's the straight up law, enjoy yourself, policymakers. Um, but you can also distinguish between lawful and awful. You can help them, <laughs> you know, say, hey, this is, you know, this is legal for you to do, but it's probably not the best policy. It's not a good look. <laughs> and here's why. Um, how did you sort of um, negotiate those roles? So I actually think it's really important that that lawful but awful um, category is a really important one to talk about. And I, I think that the benefit of having been on the Hill is that you become very familiar with that space. Because, you know, frankly, <laughs> anything on the Hill, you can, you can pass a law. Um, and there's, you can pass a law on all sorts of things that then become lawful but awful. Um, and so you really have to think about the policy implications of it. And to me, what I realized actually in some of the experiences that I had uh, were that it was very important to advise this is the law, this is what we think is a bad idea, and this is why. These are the public policy, the longer-term implications of, of a particular approach. Um, and that, that's something that you're, you're actually not doing good service to your client unless you, you talk about those things. Yeah, so on a basic level, you had four deputies underneath you. Can you just talk broadly about what the general counsel addresses? Because um, we've had some JAGs come in here, and so it's helpful to for the audience to understand the difference between the, the uniform side and what the general counsel does and the relationship. <laughs> so, so the relationship. So, we worked very closely with with the uh, the the TJAG in particular. So that the, the lead lawyer for the the military side of uh, the military lawyers. Um, it was very important to have a close relationship. We really tried to be um, to to work together on all sorts of issues. Um, but we do have distinct roles. Um, the the. the the general counsel is really responsible for a lot of the policies. Uh, so a lot of those come up uh, on a more formal way um, to the general counsel as opposed to the military side. Um, there is – some of it is a bit random. <laughs> what fits where? Um, I think the uh, – you know, you have the same issues that come up other places, things like ethics. Um, so the the uh, all of the general counsels are designated ethics officers, um, and which makes sense for the for their various uh, for their departments. Um, it's a little bit different than a, than a, than a jaguar. You're you're not um, you're not on the front lines in, in any of those situations, um, litigating for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so now you are at Cloudflare. Uh, can you tell us what your company? does and what your job is there? Um, so I'm the head of public policy. Um, Cloudflare is a uh, cyber web, web performance and security company, <laughs> which doesn't tell you any more <laughs> than the name. Uh, but what we do is we actually have a, a big global network. Uh, we, we're in uh, more than 200 cities around the world uh, with equipment. And what we do is if you have a, if you have a website, we, we speed it up. So we speed up people's access to it and we protect it from cyber attack. Uh, so it's a, uh, and we have we have more than 20 million uh, different domains on us. Uh, so we see a ton of internet traffic, uh, and from a from a practical standpoint, we can protect that from cyber threats. 
Well, so you transitioned, though, from a private sector law firm to the government and then to the private sector managing policy. Can you talk about those transitions? And the cultures must be very different. So, so the cultures are very different. So I went from I went from the army, which had had which had more than a million people, to a company which had fewer than five hundred at the time that I joined. Uh, very different organizations. I, I think also it was uh, when I joined Cloudflare, it was still a relatively young company. It's still a relatively young company. It was founded in twenty ten. Um, but there's a difference from a policy development standpoint. So if you think about what the military is, it's all about having a policy for everything. There's a policy about <laughs> oh how you wear gosh. your hair. There's a policy about what, what uniform you wear, when you wear the uniform, what you're allowed to do. You can't <laughs> find any of them, but they exist. <laughs> That's because there's so many of them that you spend all of your time looking through all the others. Um, <laughs> so, so there's a regulation for everything. I think when you go into the startup world, what you realize is that there aren't really policies when you start a company. And that's not what that's not the first thing that people think about. They want they want their company to get off the ground. They want the company to work. They have to think about what the business model looks like. It's not about how you wear your hair and <laughs> the sort of specifics. Um, so it, it feels very different just in the level of, uh, of it, it feels very much less regulated, I guess, is the is, is a way to think about it. Um, but it's also um, one of the things I actually most enjoyed, one of the reasons I made the transition, um, looking for a kind of job that had some of the creativity um, that I saw in the, in, in the government space, because I, I think probably both all, all experience this too, uh, when you're in government, Often you're looking for creative solutions to a problem. So when you when you think about uh, how you actually serve your client well, uh, your your institutional client well, sometimes it's coming up with uh, creative drafting on on, on on solving a problem or thinking about how to respond to something that actually uh, answers the mail but doesn't actually reveal information that you're concerned about revealing. So there's there's always this level of creativity about how you can work through a problem um, and often a legal problem as well so how do you apply law in in ways where it's really no one knows and no one's looking at it externally um, I think in a when you started a, a young company you're doing some of the same things and at Cloudflare in particular um, in the tech sector so much of the law is still not really defined um, people haven't thought about how it applies to different kinds of organizations or different kinds of of um, different kinds of products um there's a, there's a whole new world there too yeah so um i you know i i'm in a in a tech role myself um and can you talk a little bit more about some of like specifically some of those ha- very hairy very novel issues that have popped up as you're building the airplane while it's flying <laughs> while you're making the company go you're also like oh you should have a policy for this maybe um what are some of the tough calls or our challenges you've had while you've been head of policy at cloudflare so one of the interesting things for us so we're in a we're in an infrastructure space um we're very much in this cybersecurity role um we're trying to help make the world a better place by making it more secure uh, that is really part of what our mission is um in order to do that we provide a free service uh, and one of the things that you're seeing right now, just in terms of controversy, is anybody who provides a service has actors on them that are maybe less than desirable in a lot of ways. And there's a, there's a there is a renewed attention on that, um, but people don't always think through. Uh, what the different roles might be of organizations. So what does it mean for us to provide that service versus someone else? Um, does it look different? What are the consequences? What are the consequences of terminating? People aren't often aren't that nuanced, and the law is not always that nuanced. So it's really, as, a, as, the, head of policy, as the head of public policy, it's really trying to help think through those issues and try to help explain them to people, uh, often who are 
equally as untechnical as I am, um, <laughs> which is uh, which is it's it's been a, it's been really interesting. Well, if you guys aren't off- if you're offering your service for free, how does Cloudflare make money, and how does a website use your services? Uh, so we have what's called a freemium model. So we uh, you ha- we have a version of our service that's a really pretty bare bones service, um, but it's great if you need sort of basic cyber protection. Um, local dentist. Yes, okay. exactly. Or right. a local blog. Or you know you have somebody you just want to make your content just a little bit faster. You want to avoid a cyber attack. It's great. Um, from a if you're a really large enterprise you want lots of extra abilities. You want to be able to do things on a more granular level. You want to be able to control all sorts of different components. We offer you a paid version of that service. <laughs> um, and, the, and the benefit of that is actually you get the benefits from the, for us, we see all the cyber threats on all of the actors, including the free ones. We can apply the, the, the knowledge that we get um, to our, our higher paid enterprises. <laughs> All right. So, but let's talk about that. On the government and private sector sides of cyber, um, there have to be massive differences. And you were referring to enterprise scale. In the private sector, talk about enterprise scale. In the government sector. Um, But why don't you talk about the different approaches that each community has and how are they doing in a time of uh, cloud and everything? How are these folks working together with the government, private sector and the government? So I think one of the interesting things in that space, I think they work together in, in important ways, but I think that there's always a bit of an arm's length transaction. I, and I think that's actually really important. Um, I think that the private sector wants to make sure that we protect uh, our enterprises from cyber attack. Um, we want to make sure that everyone is protected from cyber attack. Um, the government has a more complicated set of of issues. They want that too, but they may also want access in certain cases. They may not want certain entities protected from cyber attack. They have a different set of interests at, at times. And so thinking about what those two, the, the government relationship to the private sector, it's important to understand where the interests converge and where they diverge. Uh, and they're that actually helps inform how they interact. Um, so everyone is can be it can there can be a lot of agreement that um, we need to protect. Um, we need to think about how we do that. We need to think about how we do a, a better job information sharing, for example, or um, or making sure that there's a awareness that certain things need to be protected against. There can be a, there can be a lot more pushback if there's sort of a you should help the government um, in order to potentially facilitate an attack, for example. Um, that has a very different feel uh, in the, in that interaction. Oh yes, sounds <laughs> like it. We never hear about that with backdoors and everything else. <laughs> exactly. um, boy, that's hot news these days for sure. Um, so we kind of alluded to this, but let's dig a little bit deeper. Um, people in cyber and national security are constantly lamenting that the law hasn't caught up to the way that people behave online and that attribution to miscreants, uh, bad actors, um, and enforcement of the laws we do have is incredibly challenging. What do you all think about this at Cloudflare? And what do you think about it? So I think that's a tough space. I think one of the things that we haven't seen to date, we haven't seen a similar level of enforcement uh, online as we see offline. And I, th- I think that's actually a problem because I think that there is this expectation. So we, we see this in the in the cybersecurity space. Um, so we think it's really imp- important to provide cybersecurity services on a content-neutral basis to everyone, in part because there's no one else out there doing that. Uh, you know, the, the the government isn't out there saying it's it's not sort of the the ordered streets of the of the real world. There's a there is a a sense that if no one is protecting you, um, 
the government's not protecting you either. Um, and I, I think that's a potentially long-term problem that we sort of have to think through. Uh, and we have to think about how we do a better job uh, enforcing against or prosecuting attacks, for example, online um, from a cyber attack standpoint. I think on the attribution side, that's where things get complicated. Um, so you end up with the questions of nation state actors. Um, how do you do attribution? Who does attribution? Um, how do you actually identify uh, whether that is something that you potentially want to do from a policy standpoint? Um, and a lot of those are really on the government side as opposed to the private sector side. They're much more important um, for the government because it, it ends up as how you work with another government or how you, how, how you actually move forward on policy. I mean, it's really it's, – the government's in a really challenging spot, though, and you know this from your government work, in that um, – uh, it's it's easy to enforce your border because there's a hard physical border. You can see it, you can touch it, you can walk across it. Um, but it's hard in cyberspace to see who's doing what. You have all of these different um, kinds of tools and techniques that you can use to mask your identity that you don't really have in the real world. I mean, what are some of the way like the ways that government and private sector are confronting those kinds of challenges? So I think there are actually a lot of things that can be done, and and it's not I think as as hard as it might seem <laughs> on the outside. I, I think that doesn't mean that doesn't happen. Um, but I, I think the thing that's striking, it goes back to that same tension, right? There's a, there's a tension between the government wanting to be able to hide itself uh, and yet wanting to be able to uncover um, who's doing it on behalf of others. And there is constantly a tension there. This, is the, this goes back to that encryption piece. We want to encrypt our own communications. We want The government certainly isn't going to go send out a bunch of, of unencrypted communications just because they happen to want an encryption backdoor for something. They recognize that that's not in their interest. But sometimes thinking about what is good for one, you know, it doesn't work in all situations for them. And I think when you get to the company side, what you end up with are things that look more like everyone, we should just do this because it is a good thing for everyone. Um, and we, the, the private sector doesn't think as much about the sort of what is the other, the interest on the other side, because they're really thinking security, security, security. All right. Well, um, We've uh, talked a lot about a lot of different issues. I think you've established your bona fides here on some of these legal <laughs> issues. But, um, the, you know, there are a couple things pending right now or out there, one of which we would be interesting to discuss is the Cloud Act and why it is so controversial at this point. Sure. So it's a the Cloud Act is a really good idea about a way of getting information across borders. So one of the concerns that we've we've seen is that with cloud computing, with um, with the ability to store data in lots of different places, uh, there's been a sort of breakdown between governments about based on where data is stored. And it doesn't data storage doesn't necessarily reflect those lines and sovereignty that you mentioned before. Uh, and and so the the challenge is okay. How do we come up with a a regime where that makes sense in some way. So what the Cloud Act was trying to do was was really to think about uh, let's let's think about governments getting access to data based on who they're looking at. So if the person is a U.S. person, for example, and um, the U.S. government should have access to it no matter where it's stored. Um, potentially, go- that goes the same for other kinds of people. You want um, you you want foreign governments though to, to to satisfy a certain set of criteria, human rights criteria, uh, due process criteria before getting access to data that's stored in the U.S. It's a way of making sure that, that that's a responsible um, way of getting access. That's really what the Cloud Act was trying to do. The challenge has been that uh, the way the Cloud Act changed the law, it basically said the U.S. government could get access to data anywhere it was stored. Uh, and that has 
raised a lot of eyebrows <laughs> in other places <laughs> around the world, um, even though I think that uh, and people in the Department of Justice, for example, would probably say that's always what the law said. If, they, if it was a U.S. provider, they could get information everywhere. And that's certainly what they, they argued in the Microsoft Ireland case. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's been an interesting discussion because I think it's, it's put something in writing in a very explicit way um, that some other countries are not that comfortable with. Yeah, and so people are using protectionist arguments uh, to kind of uh, say, especially in Europe, to say, hey, maybe we should establish our own networks and not store right. data in the United States. Oh, not, not actually use U.S. providers. Because if the idea is who can the U.S. government get access to, it's access to U.S. providers, uh, then you, the response is, well, then we shouldn't use U.S. providers. And that's, I think that's bad long term just for U.S. business, but also uh, just for growth in general in the U.S. And it complicates things because these companies are global, right? So that's right. A lot of, a lot of companies have subsidiaries in Ireland so that they can, you know, do business in Ireland, uh, tax shelters. And th- so there's all kinds of different interactions of laws that makes this super complicated That's as right. well. Yeah, you do see a lot of this in the context of sort of the GDPR debates mm-hmm. and all of those um, concerns. And then I remember there was some talk of data localization around NAF. Um, so yeah, that's it. I couldn't think of it. Um, but yeah, it's a very interesting thing. And I'm sure this is a, a robust conversation had on any CFIUS review yes. uh, when you're looking at uh, any kind of acquisition um, by a foreign company. But of course, uh, you know, Americans want their process. You know, they want to get the bad guy and wherever he is and wherever that data may be stored. Because at this point, consumers have nothing to say about that, right? It just goes where it goes. So considering your unique background from both the CIA and at a private company. Can you tell us what you thought about the amazing Greg Miller story in the February 11th Washington Post that talked about crypto AG? It was fascinating. I, I agree. <laughs> I read it with a lot of interest um, for both for, for both roles. So as someone who spent some time in the intelligence community, it's one of those things you look at and you say, that's an amazing intelligence operation. Uh, as somebody who spent time in the private sector community, I look at it and I say, no wonder everyone's skeptical of the U.S. and U.S. <laughs> companies. So I, I, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> Very much depends on your perspective. Um, I think the the story, the fact that he got access to so much information and can so tell let's a let's give our listeners a little quick primer on this. So basically what happened was there's a guy, a Norwegian guy, who developed a, let's just call it broadly a communications device. Um, and it was sold and used all over the world as having been developed by the private sector. And the company was located in Switzerland. Um, and that device was used to collect communications for decades. And did so successfully, wildly successfully. And it was actually owned by the CIA. Well, it was owned by the guy. But the the CIA benefited. And believe it or not, so he was a person who was motivated in part by the occupation uh, of Norway, which occurred at the hands of the Nazis. And I think some of this was this feeling that the United States was a great place. Um, But anyway, that is what happened. The information ended up being proprietary to the CIA, and they siphoned it off for years in what was an unmitigated success. Right. I mean, so they were basically decrypting. They, 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 they essentially weakened encryption for, um, for other folks, for, for people who haven't read the story. Uh, and so they were – something that looked encrypted really wasn't, um, is, is the bottom line, uh, for, at least for the CIA. Um, I, you know, I think, I think the interesting thing about that, it does go to the encryption debate that we're having now. Um, I think we have to think about how those things look, um, and we have to think about what impact they have. And it's in, you're right, it's an it's incredibly successful intelligence operation. That is sort of the dream intelligence operation, uh, where you, you've, you have access to a bunch of things that no one realizes you have access to. Um, on the other hand, um, it is what drives distrust uh, of U.S. business. And so 
thinking about how you weigh the consequences of an action. Um, and we, we see this in intelligence all the time. You're doing something that may be an incredibly successful operation, but it has longer-term consequences. Um, it's the Fair, like to the U.S. economy and providers and manufacturers yeah. of these things and private companies who give jobs to people. Exactly. And, but also to people, you know, American citizens that are concerned about privacy, right, especially with the encryption debate, give us a backdoor so we can get inside if you're the government. Yeah. But people are really concerned about government overreach, um, misuse of, of this kind of data by the U.S. and the government is saying, trust us. Right. And, you know, it's 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 a catch-22 of having an open society where we declassify this, you know, this kind of operation. And so it makes people wonder, well, what are we doing now? Well, once you have a, a dog door, you know, the other the neighborhood cats can come in too, right? I actually think one of the other things that it raises is the, the, the real need to have things that look like, uh, for example, vulnerabilities, equities processes, where you're evaluating what the long-term consequences are so that there is some trust, at least even in the U.S., um, there's some trust that you're actually thinking about the long-term consequences and evaluating them as you go into an operation. So what are the what are the pros and cons? What effect will it have on the economy? Uh, what what is the long-term effect uh, in all of the areas it may it, it and and th- those are things that you think about in advance and you evaluate in advance. I think it's interesting that you say that too. And trust is, I think, a, a critical component of it. They do have to trust that it's going to have integrity. I think the other thing is these things become very complex now that all communication systems are interwoven with others. So the interplay with other systems raises all sorts of consequences that I think are really hard to game out and to project. Certainly. And I think, you know, we're we're on the other side of it with the Huawei controversy, right? We're we're trying, we're we're now suspicious of Chinese, you know, ostensibly neutral devices. Oh, you know, everybody use a, a phone with this Chinese component in it. Should we trust that? Should we not? Um, what should be the consequences of having a global trade and relying on cheap products from China? Well, there are some, and we have to grapple with them. I think on the Huawei piece, that one of the pieces I think is really interesting, one of the policy arguments that, that's been made against Huawei is the notion that China has laws that allow access to U.S., to uh, Chinese companies, which is essentially the exact argument that's being made right, right. on the on the Cloud Act. Exactly. And so it's the flip of, of the two, and, and they're not morally equivalent for all sorts of reasons that we know as anyone who's worked in the well, U.S. And government. And the, the Chinese law is larger in scope because ECPA's application is really to uh, right. limited uh, – sector, if you will. Well, that's the, 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 you're exactly right. And then we have due process in place. And we have a lot of things that, that actually apply, which is why it doesn't look the same. But you can make an argument that it does. And that's, that's not a great policy argument um, because of that. True, true. Alyssa, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. You can find Alyssa's bio, links to the Black Letter Law, and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes of this podcast. We will be back next week with new topics in national security. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Drop us a note at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. You can also find us on Facebook, and we welcome your feedback. And last but not least, remember that the attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. See you next time on National Security Law Today. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.